Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Burke Osdogan, Dexalot's Head of Trading. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Hey, Ash. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. Lots to talk about, Burke. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, decentralized exchanges, DEXs, uh, and much, much more to cover in this conversation. But first, let's take a look at price action here on the day. Bitcoin, well, it's lost its 27 handle trading right now at 26,911, uh, down 2.7, 2.8%, call it trailing 24 hours, trailing seven days up about two and a quarter percent. Ethereum, we've lost the 19 handle trading right now at 1,858 on my screen, trailing 24 hours off about two and a quarter percent, let's call it trailing seven days. It's up around 3.7% over the last week or so. Burke, it's great to have you here on Real Vision Crypto. Much to talk about. We were chatting a little bit before the show got started. Uh, we both spent a bit of time working at banks. Tell us a little bit about your background in TradFi before we get started talking about crypto. Yeah, of course. First of all, thanks for having me. You know, pleasure to be here. Obviously, I'm a big fan. Um, my background, I'm an engineer by training, of course. Uh, spent uh, 10, 11 years in Wall Street across a few large institutions. Uh, I was last at JP Morgan, part of the FX trading team, specifically focusing on the algo trading business. Essentially, we built the software that institutional clients would use to execute their very large size FX transactions, um, you know, day in and day out. Obviously, one of the most liquid markets. And since 2016 or so, I've been quite involved in crypto. You know, obviously first as a hobbyist, enthusiast, and eventually now full-time. And, uh, you know, glad to be here and looking forward to this conversation. That's how, you know, uh, that's, that's why I'm here now. <laughs> so how did you get involved in crypto? Uh, what was it that sparked your interest as a former TradFi guy? What potential did you see there uh, for doing all the things that we're about to discuss? Yeah, uh, funny, multiple stories, actually. So in 2016, you know, I, I had a reasonably long commute. I live in a New York City, New Jersey area. Uh, commutes are usually 30 minutes or longer from where I live to work. And I sort of was like, hey, this, is, this seems like a new asset class. Let me get on some podcasts. One podcast, particularly from a gentleman named Emin Gün Siraj, you know, the founder of Avalanche, back then was a professor at Cornell of Distributed Systems, changed my entire perspective. It was about multi-sig non-custodial wallets that basically allowed for the non-custodial relationship, uh, you know, to interact with various things. 
but also had an ad additional security feature. I was like, huh, this is interesting and may have real applications in traditional finance. One thing led to another. I, I fell down the rabbit hole, uh, the proverbial rabbit hole, and I actually left JP Morgan in uh, 2018 timeframe, specifically to go work on you know, what's now known as DeFi primitives, right? Uh, the most interesting thing I've done then was basically uh, a decentralized exchange very much like a NASDAQ or NYSE or Coinbase on the Ethereum blockchain. Obviously, this is well before Ethereum 2.0. This was right around the big ICO boom. And basically, the team that I was part of built a ground-up club, central limit order book, on Ethereum, right? Uh, it was intending to trade what's, what's known as security tokens, and the user experience didn't quite work out. I ended up going back to JP Morgan, but with the full vision that whenever blockchains and whenever specifically smart contract capability advanced to the point where it can rival traditional exchanges that I would eventually go back, right? That was kind of the idea. Uh, funny enough, in October of 2020, I pitched a generation three blockchain-based central limit order book exchange idea to then the head of macro trading at JP Morgan, whom you know I, I reported to effectively. And while the idea was very intriguing to everybody that I talked about, the unfortunate reality at the time was not enough regulatory framework in place. And right. even if we build it, great, we're gonna make, you know, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like, we're gonna make 50, 100 million something, and we're gonna get hit by like a potential uh, regulatory penalty in the billions, right? right. Therefore, uh, let's sleep on this, right? That was sort of the, uh, that was the answer I got at the end of 2020. Of course, right. as 2021 rolled around, other businesses started showing interest and, you know, similar to other banks, JP Morgan also started building things. But as you can imagine, without the regulatory clarity, you know, with what SEC as well as other regulators are doing globally, you know, right. that project is kind of, you know, uh, was dormant, at which point which, I which, left. Yeah. Which, by the way, we should point out when you say uh, SEC and other regulators, they are not currently, at least in the United States, harmonized on the view of how this They're industry not. works. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I very much like the way that you started that, uh, which is uh, sitting in George Washington Bridge traffic on Route 80 is enough to change anyone's view of the world. I know it did not. Absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> how it was. I was trying to consume as much information outside of my own world as possible because look, these things are real and you know, people, there's a lot of people out there that are complete non-believers, but I'm one of those people that right. this type of technology, once it can become the fundamental building block of some other service that I use, it's going to change things, right? And that's how I ended up uh, where I am now, full-time in crypto, if you will. Or hey, let me ask you this. What was it that really caught your attention the most? Was it the potential to trade digital assets natively on these decentralized exchanges? Or was it the mm -hmm. idea of what might be coming down the pike in terms of the digitization of everything, tokenization, the ability sure. to trade securities tokens? Which was it that really uh, caught your eye uh, from sure. the perspective of use cases? Yeah, quite honestly, it was not tokenization for me. Like tokenization makes a lot of sense for certain use cases. I'm not one of the folks that believe everything should be tokenized. 
I think there are a lot of illiquid markets that needs to be tokenized and eventually there will be. But what really caught my attention was how trading as we know it in traditional finance could change if we integrated blockchains into the business. And, it, and the answer is not a single thing, it's, it's multifold. Number one, you know, I'll talk more about the recent stuff, right? Think about the FTXs of the world. Think about like the exchanges that uh, disappeared, created losses for people, created a lot of headaches for regulators. That's, those problems can actually be solved by transparency, number one, and then non-custodial relationships, number two. Transparency, because if you actually have full transparency on where trading activity is taking place, who, like which wallets have what positions and who's doing what, I think it levels the playing field, right? You, you no longer have individual private companies potentially doing bad things with other people's money. That sort of becomes extremely difficult. Second, regulators, and believe me, I've been at the end of a lot of regulator questions in my time in Wall Street, will have a significantly easier time looking at data and understanding what's actually happening in the markets. The way this worked, at least for me, in TradFi is we had a lot of algos. They would go out in the market, they would make certain decisions and execute. And then a few months later, maybe a couple of years later, you would receive a question saying, what did your algo do here and why did it do it? Explain to me and make sure it's not nefarious, right? The reason why they had to ask those questions were, you know, in OTC markets, information wasn't as readily available, some of your liquidity trades in dark pools, et cetera. And it was making it very difficult for regulators to get a true picture and therefore regulate with you know, a lot of information in their hands. I think blockchain-based trading, if and when it becomes as efficient, you know, that's my caveat, is going to make, make it much easier for these markets to operate. Those were the two things. And of course, the non-custodial angle where I don't have to put my assets on a specific platform that is owned by a private company, which makes me sign all sorts of, uh, you know, subscripted contracts, you, you know, is, a, is an added benefit in my opinion, right? If I keep, if I continue to keep my assets in my own wallet, I think that's a big plus. And those were the things that sort of made me believe that this is the way forward. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's talk a little bit about the, that trajectory forward. Uh, you started off talking about building CLOB centralized limit order books. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this transition uh, from a traditional uh, centralized limit order book controlled by a financial, large financial services institution uh, to the uh, type of trading that we see on centralized exchanges in crypto today, ultimately through to decentralized exchanges or DEXs, which you're most interested in. Talk a little bit about what that journey looked like in terms of your own view of the space. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the journey is continuing, to say the least, but uh, it started out, like I said, with Ethereum, 
and a cloud that was deployed in Ethereum, right? Now, if you think about how TradFi works today, right? All, on almost all asset classes today, you have sub-second execution in the equities market. You actually have sub-10 milliseconds execution for most of the cases. In effect, it's sub-100 milliseconds, et cetera. And back in 2017, 18, 19, Ethereum couldn't support that kind of user experience, right? What that right. means is you attempt to do a trade, your transaction is going through for the next 10 minutes while the market is doing its thing and you're sitting there waiting and taking market risks. Uh, so that's where the journey started. Even though the world computer, the Ethereum world computer, as people call it, allowed a, a developer to actually develop the matching engine as what, you know, what matches people's orders on chain, the user experience didn't work. It wasn't possible to risk manage effectively. And quite honestly, clubs didn't work on Ethereum, right? Then obviously we saw very clever folks come up with the concept of a constant product formula to eliminate the need of a uh, central limit order book. And instead they created these liquidity pools, AMMs as they're called in the Web3 world, which allow people to basically tie assets together, become a market maker and provide liquidity to the market. Speaking of that shift from uh, centralized limit order books to liquidity pools, I think about that really as a function of strengths and weaknesses, trade-offs in technology. Uh, when you have a uh, when you have a tradfi uh, centralized limit order book framework, you as you said, uh, sub uh, ten millisecond execution times, uh, you can't do that on blockchains. But what you can do is something that's very interesting, which is to lock in smart contracts uh, in ways that third parties and even the parties who entered into those contracts cannot alter. So you have essentially this mechanism where you can say, okay, we can lock money so that we can build a liquidity pool with price matching. And when you have price deltas and they move, uh, you obviously get a change in the movement of that liquidity pool. It's really actually kind of an interesting and clever solution to a challenge uh, and also an advantage that DeFi uh, specifically uh, and more generally crypto and smart contracts provide. Absolutely agreed. So first of all, in my opinion, this is one of the most clever things I've actually witnessed in Web3, right? Basically, you have this issue with the underlying protocol not being developed enough to provide you the speed that you need so that you can execute trades quickly. And instead, folks created a mathematical solution that sort of worked around the protocol level right. issue, reduced the number of transactions you would need to do a trade, and simultaneously improved the user experience tremendously. Like imagine a traditional exchange experience, right? You have to deposit, wait for the deposit to clear, then you have to enter orders. And if you're entering limit orders, you have to wait for somebody to hit your limit orders. In the case of an AMM, one click, atomic, execution happens in your wallet and boom, you're done. You only suffer one click and one confirmation time. So By the way, when you, when, you mean, when you say atomic, for folks who may not understand, you're talking about essentially locking down uh, multiple uh, sides, legs of a trade simultaneously with a smart contract uh, in a way that would be very difficult to do in traditional finance. Exactly. I'm sorry, I should have explained that a little bit better, but exactly. With one action, everything you need for one asset to become another happens, right? right. And you know, it's a significant and fundamental shift, and I would argue that was the first and one of the biggest user experience improvements in DeFi, uh, in my opinion. Now, obviously with the, what I call generation three blockchains, you know, you have avalanches of the world, Solanas of the world, and many new up and comers. 
who are pushing the boundaries of time to finality, right? Specifically, I believe clubs are a lot more feasible now, and I'm going to compare why clubs versus AMMs, but clubs are a lot more feasible now because the user experience are coming experience is coming very close to what it was in traditional finance clubs without compromising on the non-custodial aspect, i.e. you don't deposit your assets anywhere other than the blockchain. And then, of course, you still have that transparency layer where you know what's happening on chain directly on chain. So this is extremely interesting. And let me just do a little bit of translating here for the audience. Essentially, what you're saying uh, is that some of the original weaknesses for centralized limit order books uh, that caused uh, DeFi to move in the direction of liquidity pools in the first place uh, by these uh, what you call third generation blockchains, uh, which have transaction uh, finality, meaning final settlement on the chain happening much faster. Uh, in your view, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying essentially that this is a universe in which centralized limit order books actually can live and thrive uh, and therefore provide more similar functionality to what we saw in TradFi. Really interesting. Absolutely. I mean, think about how TradFi market and how electronic trading developed, right? Over the course of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, and now, I think the market has truly settled in the most capital efficient and the most generally everything else efficient way of trading, which is central limit order books. And also think about how big the traditional finance market is, how many actors there are, et cetera, for them to move to this space. I think while AMMs are cool, novel, and interesting, their capital efficiency, or I should say capital deficiency, as well as the way they operate are so different with non-deterministic execution pricing, meaning once you click, you think you're going to get a price, but you actually have a margin right. of error, right? This is, this is what people talk about slippage. Uh, and, exactly. and you know the important thing I think to understand here uh, is that on a limit order book, you can do precisely that. You can place limits uh, against individual trades exactly. and obviously a whole series of other uh, order execution management type of parameters uh, that you just cannot do today on uh, liquidity pools. Exactly. And the fact that you know everybody already built big infrastructure, APIs, workflows relating to clubs, I think, we API, API for people who may now not know, application programming, programming interface. interface. Uh, this is essentially the ability to allow computers to talk to each other programmatically uh, in a way that you can develop an open standard, you can publish that open standard, and then you can have different systems integrate uh, without necessarily having centralized coordination. Exactly. So think about all the infrastructure that traditional finance institutions have built. If you can give them the exact type of connectivity, communication protocols, APIs, application programming interfaces, and the general behavior while giving them the added benefit of non-custodial relationships with the counterparties that they're trading with, plus the transparency. I think there is a real shot on decentralized central limit order book exchanges taking off, especially if you think about the events of 2022 and all the bad things that happened because of a, quite honestly, a handful of bad actors and the domino effect they caused. I right. expect the market and the trends to shift in that direction. Well, that plays precisely into the point that you made about non-custodial trading. Talk a little bit about what that is for the layperson who may be struggling sure. to get their head around it. Sure. So, you know, let's talk about what a custodial relationship is, right? Essentially, what that means is you're allowing another entity or a participant to take custody of your assets. You are depositing your assets to a wallet that belongs to somebody else. 
and you're essentially trusting them to safeguard your assets and direct your assets in the same way that you would tell them to direct it, right? You know, to further break it down, when you deposit your assets into a centralized exchange, they will take it into their own wallet and they will create a virtual account with credit for you to trade with. And, you know, one way to think about it is the, the exact link between the balances that you have on the exchange that you see on the front end of the webpage and the actual balances you deposit, the link between them becomes blurry and maybe disappears, right? That's what right. we've seen with some of the exchanges that unfortunately, you know, went yes. bust where, yes. you know, the number of assets that were deposited versus the amount of trading and the volume that was occurring was not the same. Right. Decentralized exchanges eliminate that trust into an individual institution and it typically replaces it with either your own wallets in the case of one transaction trading or in the case of central limit order books typically replaces it with a smart contract that you can always look and see the contents of on the blockchain. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Yeah, and it's important to point out uh, that the risk on this is not just technical, but it's also currently legal. Uh, in other words, if you have a deposit on an exchange and the exchange goes bust, uh, it's guess what? Get in line and stand behind the rest of the creditors. Figure out yeah. jockey for position in terms of creditor classes, in terms of where you get paid out uh, in the bankruptcy. That's a challenge and obviously something that, as you point out, non-custodial trading, non-custodial asset solutions more generally have the capacity to significantly, significantly change the landscape of in a way that, quite frankly, is very novel uh, to this space. And I think it's just incredibly exciting. Let's talk a little bit about the underlying technology that you guys are using at Dexalot. Why AVAX? So uh, I, I mentioned this part earlier as well. Time to finality, which you you know eloquently you know expressed as time for the final settlement to occur in Avalanche is quite quick, right? Avalanche under the covers has a very novel consensus mechanism, which allows uh, a blockchain and uh, transactions to become final, as in non-changeable, very quickly. You know the biggest and probably one of the most important reasons for us was the fact that Avalanche doesn't have reorgs, right? Even in Ethereum or other Ethereum-like blockchains, you have uh, something called reorgs where once the transaction is confirmed, until a few more uh, confirmations happen, you have a probabilistic chance of potentially losing that transaction. You know, I'm simplifying, of course, but Avalanche does not have that problem. And if you think about Obviously, if you exaggerate the problem and think about trading, imagine you do a trade, right? 20 minutes passes, and all of a sudden that trade, that risk that you have recorded disappears because the blockchain reorged because there was a you know, longer chain, longer source of truth. Somebody took over and your transaction disappeared. This was a real risk, and we didn't like it from an exchange perspective. We felt like none of our users would like it. And of course, ability to finalize a transaction within at most two seconds was extremely important. And the last reason, which is where, where Dexalot is now, is that Avalanche allowed scaling through something called subnets. Right. Subnets are essentially blockchains that you can spin up quickly 
eliminate the, you know, the sharing of the bandwidth with other projects. Imagine if you're an exchange, a very successful DGEN, uh, DGEN loved NFT project drops, the chain gets clogged, right? I think I read something about, you know, ordinals are quite popular in Bitcoin today. The Bitcoin mempool is so full that it's going to take a few days to clear, right? You don't want other successes on the blockchain affecting your product. And by spinning yeah. up a separate blockchain that's still connected to the main chain yep. to run your application was incredibly important to us. Yeah, we're we there now. It's a perfect metaphor too, because of obviously the consternation that that's caused in the Bitcoin community. Essentially, you have transaction finality being delayed uh, for all types of transactions while the mempool uh, gets flooded with uh, requests for ordinals or whatever else. We don't want to pick on anyone exactly. here, but it's just the premise uh, that you can have one uh, sort of uh, category of transaction clogging uh, the ability to execute across the board on the rest of the chain. Talking of which, talking about risks and vulnerabilities, uh, one of the things that we've seen on AVAX uh, Avalanche here in the last, uh, call it 60 days, is challenges uh, with performance degradation uh, and some mini network outages uh, on the C and X chains. Talk a little bit about that in terms of the scaling solution, in terms of the risks that it provides, but also in terms of the opportunities sure. uh, that folks in the Avalanche community see from this multi-chain world. Absolutely. So uh, I actually do keep up with most of the Gen 3 blockchains. I can't say I keep up as much as I keep up with Avalanche, but Avalabs, the team behind the blockchain, is one of those teams, particularly on the engineering side, incredibly fast in delivering additional features, right? Unfortunately, like there is a trade-off between shipping new features fast and making sure everything doesn't break. And quite honestly, no matter how much testing you do, I think it is sometimes difficult to create the exact condition of a mainnet. And there right. was an outage relatively recently uh, after, uh, after an update that was done on the platform chain on Avalanche. Now, the cool thing is that subnets, the separate application-specific chains, were not affected by this outage, right? The outage affected the platform chain and the C chain, which the two are connected, but can you, you explain look, those two chains and what they're functioning sure, is in the of network? course, of course. So Avalanche as a platform, I'm going to call it, consists of three main chains. First chain is what's called the X chain. It's a blockchain purely for transfers. X comes from exchange. It's not exactly a traditional exchange, but it allows people to send value from one wallet to the other very quickly and very cheap. That's the first chain. The second chain is called the P chain, stands for platform chain. And this is the chain where the network nodes and the node-related, the validator-related operations take place. This is the chain where the entire validation of the network occurs. And then you have the C chain, which, is, which stands for the contract chain, where it is the EVM clone or EVM compatible chain. This that is allows, the Ethereum virtual machine clone. This is the ethereal, Ethereum virtual machine where you deploy your software and let the validators run your software. Most of the activity, of course, occurs on the C chain. And essentially what I'm saying is subnets are similar chains to the C chain with specific customizations designed to support typically a subset or maybe a single application. In the case of Dexalot, it's a single blockchain that is designed only to do trading in a central limit order block. Yeah. 
Obviously, uh, for folks who are relatively new to this space, this can seem a little bit confusing, a lot of moving parts here. Uh, but let's talk about uh, the general framework for how you think about uh, the scaling of this network uh, and what you think the potential is to start executing at scale uh, that sure. we can see, for example, in TradFi, uh, you mentioned FX, we've talked about uh, equities. Obviously, this type of trading, absolutely massive scale in terms of what the throughput is currently in traditional finance. Absolutely. I mean, the speed with which this development is occurring is incredible, right? Like the original avalanche consensus, which, which still stands today, allows you to scale to millions of nodes without significant degradation in time to finality, ability to finalize these transactions quickly, right? That's one, one aspect of it, i.e. you can push through a lot more operations per second without compromising on the fact that once transactions occur, they cannot be changed, right? That's number one. Number two is this subnet scaling solution. You can spin up as many subnets as you want, and it doesn't have to be one subnet per application. Imagine the case of an exchange. Typically, for example, you, you mentioned equities, right? In the equities world, traditional finance uh, trading systems will stripe their infrastructure by buckets. For example, in the equities world, the letter A, the stocks that start with the letter A, typically have higher volume. There are a lot more names in that bucket. So people will create a hardware tranche that only manages the stocks that start with A. Then you have B through C, blah, blah, blah. You can use subnets the same way. If, for example, you start running into capacity issues on one chain, you can stripe the assets that you listed across multiple different blockchains that are connected to each other and that talk to each other. So I view mm. the subnet scaling solution infinitely scalable in terms of capacity, i.e. its ability to support number of assets. That's one aspect of subnet. Let me, let me ask you a question about sure. that. Uh, so talking sure. about these, uh, these subnets and the striping, uh, obviously the goal here is to increase throughput, uh, but talk about the risks of striping in terms of uh, you know, one of the challenges with any type of dynamic load balancing solution in computer science is that you have to keep things synchronized. Uh, and the risk is you can get price deltas and arbitrage opportunities if those get out of sync. Talk a little bit about that because it's a considerable challenge. So I'm, I'm actually thinking about mutually exclusive assets that you would list, not, hmm. not assets that are, that have to constantly connect between subnets. But the theoretical numbers that subnet to subnet communication development that's happening on the Avalanche side, at least, seem very promising, right? As you know, bridges have become probably the largest product after, you know, the uh, after the trading exchanges. And one of the largest vectors for uh, compensation. Attacks as well. Losses, yeah. Absolutely agreed. And it's very young. I, I honestly can't claim to know what the future holds in terms of technology to allow this. But again, I think if, you, if you're able to completely separate mutually exclusive assets into potential stripes, I think there is a throughput and bandwidth to be gained there. The second aspect that I want to mention is EVM. The way I think about the EVM, and, and I, I have to sort of take my hat off, EVM is probably the biggest innovation since Bitcoin, right? Like EVM allowed this entire ecosystem to appear. And now we're at a stage where we think of the EVM as a generic engine for most cars. But if you want to build a Ferrari or if you want to build a 
brand new specialized car, you have to take the EVM, you have to get rid of the components that you don't need, and you have to specialize it, right? Again, the subnet solution allows people to build their own specific engines to do specific things for their application. The best example I can think of is uh, fabric of the exchange allows you to do KYC AML, right? It only allows certain actors that we know are properly KYC to interact with the exchange, and this can be built directly into the blockchain. So these- Let me just ask you one question. I could geek out and talk about this stuff yeah, with you for sure. the next three hours, uh, but unfortunately we're getting close to running out of time. I wanted to ask you about the token for Dexalot. This is a lot, sure. uh, Alpha Lima Oscar Tango. Uh, the token off about 72% on the trailing 12 month basis. Talk a little bit about the role that that token plays in the ecosystem and sure. also how you think about that, frankly, quite significant decline in the last 12 months or so. Sure. Uh, so quite honestly, over the last 12 months, any assets had trouble holding their value. Uh, and let me talk about the utility and what the Dexalot token is for. And then I'll let the audience sort of make their own minds about why and what's happening in the market. So the native token a lot is intended to be the transaction token for the subnet, right? The Dexalot exchange runs on a blockchain of its own. And every time a person does a transaction, a lot token is what's used to pay for that transaction uh, effectively to get that validation in. That's the primary purpose. Essentially, as more volume goes through the exchange, more users need a lot to execute those trades. That was the primary purpose of why we created the ALAT token. So, so Burke, what's the specific functionality and how do the tokenomics work? Uh, the specific functionality is for you to be able to place a trade, you need to expend a tiny amount of a lot, right? And the way this works obviously is we understand that people coming from an Ethereum ecosystem or Arbitrum ecosystem may not necessarily want to do a trade in a lot, so it's all automated. But essentially, when you do a trade, that trade to go through needs to pay a little bit of a lot for the transaction to occur. Uh, uh, ultimately, we have an autofill mechanism where, you know, once people on board to the exchange and once they start trading, it manages this balance for them. And every time there's a trade, that's what's expended. What was the second part of the question? I'm sorry. And what are the tokenomics that drive price? Sure. Essentially, the tokenomics, uh, Dexalot actually did a capital raise uh, about a year and a half ago at this point. Some of those tokens were given to our partners uh, and majority of the tokens are currently being used as a part of something uh, that we uh, aptly named DIP. DIP stands for Dexalot Incentive Program. And essentially we created this program where market makers who add value to the exchange are going to be rewarded by this token that they need to basically perform trades as well. And when I say add value, it's sort of three components. Think about what liquidity is. Liquidity means depth. Liquidity means standing there when somebody else is wanting to trade. And then we have a third component for keeping the token and holding it on the exchange. So if you add orders to the exchange, that gives you a score, how close you are to the mid, how much size you add. And then if you actually perform executions, that gives you an additional score. And then if you hold balances of a lot in the exchange, which is kind of a small kicker that we put in there, 
that gives you a combined score. Based on where you land with respect to the participants in the exchange, you get awarded the token. So the exchange is essentially- It's kind of a dynamic liquidity scoring that awards uh, based on uh, on an algorithm uh, that you guys have developed to attempt to maximize liquidity across Correct. the platform. Interesting. Correct. Berg, a fantastic conversation. This has been a, a true deep dive. Uh, I know people who are interested in decentralized trading have found this very useful. And I also imagine that folks who have backgrounds in traditional finance, trading systems, uh, e-commerce have found this to be an incredible conversation. I hope you'll come back and join us again uh, to continue this conversation. But I want to ask you, we've covered a lot of ground here today. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and our listeners with. Sure. Uh, First and foremost, I start these types of questions always with we're all going to make it, right? This is a brand new industry that's in the making. This is a brand new asset class that just emerged. And quite frankly, if you think about how traditional finance markets developed, those were not without pain. Traditional finance markets are quite efficient now. There is a very robust, yeah, not perfect, but robust set of rules that people play within, right? And quite honestly, like the, the big events that we saw in 2020 aren't unique. We've seen stuff like this in TradFi, we've seen stuff like this in 2018, and as bad as they are, these are the signs and these are the signals that make regulators really think about these things and put rules in place for people to grow. I'm actually one of those people that, that believe US is not going to exit this market because the regulations are too extreme. We'll see if I'm right or wrong, but you know we're all gonna make it, right? Builders have to build. We, can, we need to continue pushing the envelope and building these cool solutions so that we can, you know, we can move the financial rails over. That's how I, that's how I look at my daily job, if you will. Well said and a perfect place to end. Burke Ozdogan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's it for today. Remember to sign up for Real Vision Crypto. It's free, of course. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. We'll be back again tomorrow, of course, with Jacob Robert Steves, founder of BitTensor. Make sure to join us live 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern and 5 p.m. in London. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great afternoon. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.